are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit GoCentralChurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be, Luke chapter 1. And uh, I am excited It is the most wonderful time of the year, and not just because the University of Florida Gators beat that school from Tallahassee uh, last night, Uh, but it is. It is the most wonderful time of the year. I hope that you had a happy Thanksgiving. Maybe uh, you were like me, uh, and you woke up this morning hoping that your pants would fit. Uh, Last night, I was tempted to see how quick Amazon could get like dress sweatpants to me uh, for today, Um, but uh, they weren't weren't fast enough. So I want to just do a quick unscientific poll. So uh, how many of you ate turkey on Thanksgiving? All right. How many of you ate ham on Thanksgiving? Yeah. Put your hands high so I can judge you later. All right. Uh, Yeah. So it is the most wonderful time of the year. My house uh, has been being like kind of in process, being decorated for Christmas over the last several weeks. Uh, And on actually the day before Thanksgiving this year, uh, our house was done, which is a new record for us. We were excited for Christmas this year. Uh, We love Christmas decorations in the Crowder household. Uh, We love to put ours up. Uh, One of our favorite things to do is to drive around and look at Christmas lights uh, all through our community uh, and all through our city. So if you know a place that I need to go look at Christmas lights, uh, let me know uh, because we love to do that. Uh, one of the places that we love to go and look at Christmas decorations uh, is Disney World. Now, if you've never seen Disney at Christmas, even the hotels or things like that, Disney Springs, it's worth going and seeing because they do it big. Uh, they do it well. Uh, and uh, our kids love to go and to look at the Christmas trees and uh, to hear the Christmas music and to just experience Christmas in Florida. We don't get snow, but we get Disney, right? Which I think is a better, uh, a better trade-off personally. And we love to go to Disney and to see all of the Christmas decorations and uh, to see the way that they handle everything because Disney leaves no stone unturned. They, they leave nothing to chance. They take advantage of every opportunity. And one of the ways that they do this, not just with Christmas decorations, but all through the year, is even the way that they handle construction. So if you've ever been at Disney or you've been around Disney, there will be walls up and they're, they're doing construction and they're trying to hide what's going on behind it. But on these walls will be decorations, will be advertisements, will be quotes uh, from Walt Disney himself. And that's one of my favorite things is when they put these quotes from Walt Disney up uh, that are inspirational and, uh, and are meant to motivate or to wow or to impress. And one of the quotes that is around Disney in many different places uh, is a quote that says something like this. It's kind of fun to do the impossible. It's kind of fun to do the impossible. Now, uh, what Walt Disney was saying is it's fun to have enough money to pay the best engineers and the best entertainers and the best artists not to do what is impossible, but to do what hasn't been done yet, right? That's what impossible means for Disney World. Not that it can't be done, but that we haven't done it yet, When we look at this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, we're going to see God promise to do the impossible. 
And when God promises to do the impossible, he's not promising to do what hasn't been done yet. He's promising to do what can only be done by him. Right? He's not saying that he's going to do the impossible, which means that he is going to do what we can do if we try hard enough or if we have enough ingenuity or if we do this or if we do that. No, God is going to do what only God can do. And so we're going to see him promise to do the impossible and how ultimately this gives us hope for our, our lives today. Now here in Luke 1, we see uh, this truth played out in this way. We see that the coming of Jesus proves that God can do the impossible. The coming of Jesus proves that God does the impossible. And now as we jump into this Christmas, this Advent series, one of the things that I want us to keep on our radar is this, is that it's very easy to celebrate Christmas and miss Jesus. Right? It's very easy to get distracted by the lights that I love and the decorations and the parties, and the gifts, to get distracted by all of those things, and to miss Jesus. And so over these next several weeks, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to walk slowly to the manger, right? To enjoy the lights, and the decorations, and the parties, and the food, and all of those things. But to be intentional, not just on Sunday mornings, but day by day by day being reminded of the reason that we celebrate. So here's what my family is going to do. Uh, I want to encourage you to do this uh, with us. So starting December 1st, we're going to read one chapter of the Gospel of Luke every day. There's 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke, uh, which takes us right up to Christmas Eve. Now, if you're coming to our Christmas Eve Eve service, you'll want to double up once, all right? Uh, but that'll help us walk slowly to the manger. And ultimately what that means is that whenever we get to the cross, we'll be looking at the manger as well. All right, so uh, let's not miss Jesus in the midst of all of the hustle and bustle of Christmas. Uh, so Luke chapter one, we're going to see that the coming of Jesus proves that God does the impossible. Uh, I hope that you found Luke one. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it for you on the screen. Let me invite you to stand as we honor uh, the reading of God's perfect and precious word. Starting here uh, in Luke chapter one, verse 26, the spirit says to us this morning in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me as we continue in worship 
Father, we are grateful for another day. Lord, we're grateful that we can gather together here uh, as brothers and sisters, and we can celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would be with us, you would speak to us through your word even now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we look here at Luke chapter one, we need to keep in mind some things before we dive in. Uh, so we just finished a series in Philippians. Philippians is a letter, right? It's an epistle. Uh, it's a different genre. It's a different way of writing than what we have here in Luke chapter one. And so the way that we read, the way that we study, the way that we walk through uh, Luke one, which is historical narrative, is going to look a little different than the way that we're going to study uh, a book like, say, Philippians, right? God has revealed uh, his word. He's revealed his way uh, in different genres and in different styles. And so we're going to study them in the different ways that uh, he's given them to us. And so here in Luke 1, uh, as we walk through this passage, uh, more than seeing point after point after point, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the moves of this passage. We're going to look at the scenes of this passage, and we're going to see how this shows us that in the coming of Jesus, God promises, God shows, God wills that he will do the impossible. And so as we look at Luke chapter one, first we see this, we see the context of the promise, the context of the promise. If we're not careful, we can forget that the Bible was written to and about real people in real places at a real time. The Bible isn't just a collection of inspirational stories. It's not a collection of fables. No, the Bible is dealing with history. It's dealing with reality. It shows how God has worked and will work for his people. And that's what we see here in Luke 1. We're, we're getting a picture of how God has and how God will work for his glory and for the good of his people. And now when we read the Bible, there is an important truth that governs the way that we interpret the way that we read the Bible. And it's this. It's that context is king. Right? We've got to know what's happening before, what's happening after, what's happening around. There's an immediate context. Then there's a context depending on where we find ourselves in Scripture. Right? There's a context within the entire Bible, the entire canon of Scripture. When I was a student pastor, uh, I used to tell my students this, that context is king. And when we would read the text and I wanted to point out something happening in the context, I would say context is what? And they would say king. Right? Because this is an important point to getting the Bible right. That context is king. And so the context of this promise is that we have the angel Gabriel. He's coming and he's relaying a promise from God to Mary. But before we get to that promise, we've got to see the context of what's happening. See, here in Luke 1, in verse 26, this is really the second time that Gabriel has come on the scene in Luke chapter 1. If we were to go back a little bit further in Luke 1, we would see Gabriel uh, again the first time delivering news to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is an older relative of Mary. We don't know if he's an uncle or a cousin, but we know that he's older and he's married to Elizabeth. And Gabriel comes and he tells Zechariah that Elizabeth is going to have a child. And Zechariah says, well, how can this be? Because she is barren. And she's past the age of giving children, of having children. And Gabriel says, just watch, right? Just see what the Lord will do. And then he goes from 
Zechariah to Mary. Now, the two promises, the, the context of the two promises are basically different in every way. In the first promise, he shows up to Zechariah, uh, to an old man. Now he shows up to Mary, uh, to a virgin girl. In the first promise, he shows up in the temple. In the second, he shows up in the middle of nowhere, Galilee, in a little town called Nazareth. Now, verse 26 tells us that Gabriel appears to Mary in the sixth month. This is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. We see this later on in the passage. And he, he comes from God to Nazareth, a city in Galilee. Now, Luke gives the impression that his readers probably would not have been very familiar with where Nazareth was, right? That's why he says it's in Galilee, uh, this city, Nazareth. See, when we talk about, hey, when I'm going to Orlando, we don't say I'm going to Orlando in the state of Florida, right? If I were to tell you I'm going to Los Angeles, I wouldn't tell you I'm going to Los Angeles in the state of California because we just know, right? These are big places. Uh, these are influential places. But what Luke is showing us here is that Nazareth wasn't this big influential city, it wasn't this seat of power. In fact, what we know is that Nazareth was a small agricultural village. The word city here uh, is used uh, kind of loosely uh, to designate kind of a, a place of people. In fact, if we were to go to John chapter 1, we would read where the question is asked, what good can come from Nazareth? Uh, where I grew up, uh, it was our big rivalry was Bradford High School. Stark. Maybe you've driven through Stark. And we used to say things like, what good could come out of Stark? Right? That's the armpit of Florida. There's nothing good in Stark. This is essentially what Nazareth was. What good can come from Nazareth? There's nothing in Nazareth. That's, that's not a place where, where anything special or anything important happens. In fact, the entire region of Galilee was really looked down upon by the Jewish world. The Galileans were known to play fast and loose with the Mosaic law. They were known to be ones who, who didn't really follow a strict kosher diet. They, they were, we might say, nominally Jewish. They took the name. They did some of the things, but they were uh, played a little fast and loose with this thing. What good could come out of Galilee? What good could come out of Nazareth? If there's a place to be ignored, it was here. And in the middle of Nazareth, we have Mary, this virgin, this young girl who's betrothed to Joseph, who is of the lineage of David. Now that phrase there, that he's of the house of David, that's an important phrase. Because Jesus is going to be a descendant of David. He's going to sit on David's throne. We're going to see a few verses later where he is going to be the fulfillment of the promise to David. And so when we read that Joseph is of the house and the lineage of David, what we're seeing is that Jesus's father, Jesus's adopted father, is how God chooses to work through him. And one of the things this means for us is that we need to be serious about adoption, right? We, we should be a church that loves and celebrates adoption because uh, adoption is key, is central uh, to how God worked salvation for us. 
And so Mary's betrothed to Joseph. Now, we talk about betrothal. We, we kind of have an idea that it's an engagement, but betrothal is really something more than an engagement. Uh, being betrothed to someone was a legal commitment. And the only way that you uh, could be, uh, that a betrothal could end was either through divorce. You had to actually go through a legal process of divorce or through death. A betrothal was such a, a, a serious process that for a woman whose uh, betrothed died, that woman became a widow. She was looked upon as a widow. And now, whenever I was engaged, uh, I, uh, I remember my mom telling me, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? Right? I was just happy that someone said yes, right? That, that Anna, <laughs> Anna would marry me. That's why we got married young before she could change her mind. But, but that's not the way betrothal worked in the ancient world. That's not the way this engagement, it wasn't just, hey, we're going to get engaged, but we might get married, we might set a date later. No, for Mary to be betrothed to Joseph, they weren't quite married, but they were certainly something more than engaged in the way that we think about it today. And so into this, Gabriel comes. He comes to this young, unmarried woman in a small village. Now, apart from the angel, there's nothing really impressive here. Mary isn't well known. She's not from a family of wealth or power or influence. And she's not really who we would expect the Lord to use. When we think about God sending his son, the, the second person of the Trinity, uh, to come to earth, probably, I think, if we weren't familiar with the story, we would assume that God sends Jesus to royalty. That God sends Jesus to a place of influence and a place of power. It's not even that he sent Jesus to be born of a woman who at least lived in a place of influence or at least lived in a place of power or at least lived in a place of prestige. No, he sends Jesus to be born of a woman who lives in the middle of nowhere and he's gonna be born not in a hospital or not in a bed or not even in an inn. He's gonna be born in a manger. He's gonna be born in a stall. Isn't this just like our God when we look at scripture? Isn't this just the way he works? The way God works is to regularly choose the people and the places and the ways that we would not expect. See, what's obvious to God isn't always obvious to us. In fact, this is the way God still works today, even today. He works in the places that we might not expect. That's how he works in your life and in my life even now. He works in the places and in the ways and in the situations and in the circumstances that we would never expect, that, that we would never bank on. So I, I wonder if when we're looking for God to move, if we're looking for God to act, are we looking in the places that we would expect or are we looking in the places that God would work? Because oftentimes the places that we might expect God to move aren't the places where he does. Oftentimes, he surprises us with his grace. He surprises us with his glory. And so where should we, where should you and I be looking for God to work, but we're not? See, if Jesus coming from Nazareth teaches us anything, it's that God delights to work in the small, unseen, and unexpected places. God delights to work in the places that we wouldn't expect. Maybe, maybe you think that, hey, God could never work through me. God could never use me because of this, 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 and this. But if God can work through a virgin girl in Nazareth, he can work through you. Amen. That's what this story is reminding us. 
is that if God has chosen to work in such a way through Mary in Nazareth, a village in Galilee, then he can work in a strong and in a mighty and in a powerful way in you, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, not because you are so great or so deserving, because Mary wasn't deserving. Mary wasn't this, this great spiritual powerhouse. Mary was just a girl in a village. If God can work through Mary, he can work through us. He can work through you. He can work through me. He can work through our church. And so as we look at this passage here in Luke 1, we we see the context of the promise. Next we see this, the content of the promise. The content of the promise. Uh, Now promises matter, right? Our God, he's not a a politician or a salesman who who doesn't keep his promises or who changes his promise to, to mean something different than what he had originally intended. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. When God makes a promise, we can take it to the bank. And in his promise to Mary, he makes this promise that, that Jesus is going to come. And as Jesus comes through Mary, God is proving that he can do the impossible. Now, Mary's reaction to Gabriel, it might catch us off guard at first. He greets her in verse 28. And then we see her reaction in verse 29. Look at, look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of a greeting this might be. Now, there's something important for us to know here. Anytime an angel shows up in scripture, people never say, well, that's really cool, right? People people never say, oh, isn't this something? No, people are troubled. They're they're terrified. They're, They're scared, right? I think a lot of times we think about angels and we think about precious moments, Maybe you had or you know these precious moments, figurines, but that's not the angels of the Bible. The angels of the Bible are terrifying. They're imposing. They're they're scary. And so Mary, she's troubled when she sees Gabriel. But Gabriel quickly calms her fears. See, Mary's surprised as anyone that an angel from the Lord would be greeting her. Like I said, Mary, there wasn't anything special or impressive about her. She was a young girl in the middle of nowhere, and yet here is an angel. And Gabriel calms her fears by letting her know that she has found favor with God, that she was a recipient of God's grace. Now, this is important, right? Mary does not give grace. Mary is a recipient of God's grace in the same way that you and I receive God's grace. And Mary doesn't give it, she receives it. And the picture of God's grace to Mary is that she gets to be the mother of Jesus. She's going to conceive a son and she's going to name him Jesus. Jesus means the Lord is salvation. We keep reading through this passage in verse 32, read, he will be great and he'll be called son of the most high. He'll be called the son of God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, right? That God had made that promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that his kingdom would know no end. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. If we were to go to the book of Genesis, we would see where God makes a covenant with Israel. And what Luke is saying here, what the angel Gabriel is saying here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, The way Paul puts it is that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 
So we don't have to wonder, well, did God keep his promises to Israel? Did God keep his Old Testament promises? Well, in the person of Jesus Christ, that's exactly what he has done. In Jesus, God has kept every promise that he has made and every promise that he will make. Now, Mary has some questions. How is this going to happen since she's a virgin? Now, if you remember back, Zechariah, he also questioned. And when he questioned, he, he was struck to be mute, right? He couldn't talk until he saw the birth of his son. But Mary asked a question, and her question doesn't come from a place of doubt. It comes from a place of faith. It, it comes from a place of adoration. And Gabriel's answer is that a miracle is going to happen. Verse 35, he says, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now that word overshadow, that's the same word that is used in the rest of the Bible to talk about God's glory overshadowing the Holy of Holies. So in the same way that God overshadows the Holy of Holies, God is going to overshadow Mary and she is going to conceive and she's gonna bear a son. The son will be called Holy, the son of God. Now, the virgin birth, it leads to a lot of questions, right? How can this happen? There's, there's different, uh, different ways that people have decided to, or tried to answer this question. Some have tried to dismiss the virgin birth is not true, which is wrong. Some have tried to redefine what it means to be a virgin, which is wrong. And some have just chosen to accept, get this, that God can do the impossible. Right, that, that God can do miracles. When I was thinking about this this week, I, I came up with two conclusions. First, God doesn't need us to explain his miracles. Right, that's what makes it a miracle. And second, God doesn't need us to protect him from his miracles. Right, we don't need to defend the fact that God is a wonder-working, all-powerful, supernatural God. Right, that God can do the impossible. And so he doesn't need us to protect him from his miracles. We serve a wonder-working God. But here's the thing. The virgin birth matters. It's not something we can do away with because apart from the virgin birth, Jesus cannot save us. If we lose the virgin birth, we lose the gospel. See, in the birth of Jesus Christ, we have God taking on flesh and becoming like us, but he's different from us in this, is that he's not born into sin, right? He's not conceived in sin. He's not conceived the way you and I were. And so Jesus is born as holy. He's born as perfect. He's born without sin. In fact, Jesus cannot sin. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's 100% God, 100% man. So when we think about Jesus being fully God and fully man, this doesn't mean that part of Jesus is God and part of Jesus is man. It doesn't mean that his right hand is divine and his left hand is flesh. No, it means that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. All right, so you and I, we are 100% man. That was true of Jesus. You and I are not 100% God. Jesus is. Jesus is just as much God as you and I are not God. And that's the only way that the gospel works. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. He's humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's become like us so that he could die for us. 
He's become like us so that he could take our place and bear our penalty on the sin. One of my favorite Christmas songs is a song that it's not super well known. It's by a group called Shane and Shane. And the song is called this, Born to Die. Jesus came. He lived in our place so that he could die in our place. And if we lose the virgin birth, if we lose the union, then we lose the gospel. And we can't lose the gospel. See, even in the birth of Jesus, God is working to save his people. The virgin birth isn't something that we just throw off and ignore or that we throw over here is not important. The virgin birth is too important to lose. It's too important to walk away from. And Gabriel goes on, he gives two proofs to back up what he has said. Look at verse 37. Or let's go back to verse 36. The first proof he gives is this. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. I have to believe that when Elizabeth got to heaven, she wanted to say, Gabriel, you couldn't have said something other than in her old age, right? Hey, you couldn't have been a little more gentle than that. But the reason Gabriel says this is because he's telling Mary, look, just like you don't think you can be pregnant, go talk to your cousin Elizabeth because she's pregnant, right? But then he gives a second proof in verse 37. He says, for nothing will be impossible with God. But one preacher put it like this. The moment you admit the existence of God, you must deny the impossible. The moment you admit that God exists, you must deny the impossible. The moment you admit that God exists, the impossible becomes possible. The unrealistic, the unbelievable becomes realistic and believable. Now, I wonder this. How often do we limit what God can do? It's not that we regularly face the impossible as much as we regularly face the difficult. And maybe we assume that God will not act or God doesn't care. And maybe you would say, Ethan, I don't believe that. I believe that God will act. I believe that God will care. Here is my question. I'm asking myself this question as well. Does your prayer life reflect that? Does the way you pray reflect that you believe that God can and will do the impossible? That God can and will handle the difficult? That God can and does care and love you? Do our prayers reflect that with God, the impossible becomes possible. See, I would venture to say that our prayers aren't too big, but our prayers are too small. Because we can't pray prayers that are bigger than our God can answer. That's what it means for God to be God. See, the coming of Jesus, it gives us hope for every situation. Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Do you rest in God's supernatural power or... Do you rest in your own strength? See, all of us believe either that we can handle life or God can handle our lives. It's said sometimes that, that Christianity is a crutch for the weak, but that's not true. Christianity is a gurney for the dead. See, we can't live our life in our own power. In fact, what the Bible says is that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins against him. It's not just that we need God's help. No, it's we need God's power. 
We need God to move. We need God to act. And in the coming of Jesus, we see God's promise to do just that, that God will move and God will act. And so the coming of Jesus, it proves that God can do the impossible. And so we've got the the context of the promise and the content of the promise. And finally, we see this, the confidence in the promise. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, here's the thing. It's hard to argue with an angel, right? And so Mary doesn't even try. She doesn't try to argue with Gabriel to say, Well, this can't be or or that can't happen. Mary hasn't heard this promise from Elizabeth or from Joseph or even from a priest or a friend. No, she's heard it from Gabriel. And what is her response to Gabriel? Her response to Gabriel is confidence in God. She says, I'm the servant of the Lord, so let it be according to your word. See, in verse 38, Mary's confidence in God is on full display. Her commitment is humble. Her obedience is willing. And really, this is a model response for all of us who claim to follow Jesus. We can't claim to follow him if we do not accept his plan for our lives. See, when we come to the Father, we're laying down our lives. We're admitting that he is God and that we are not. But too often, we want to be our own little gods. We want a relationship with him, but we want it on our own terms. We're like a child trying to argue the rules with a parent. Last night, uh, we get home. It's time for bed. Uh, Anna tells our kids uh, that it is time for bed. Uh, And one of our kids, I'm not going to name him. He's got blonde hair, though. Uh, One of our kids, uh, he says, I'm not going to bed tonight. Oh, really? You're going to bed first, right? Uh, uh, this is not, uh, Anna tells our kids regularly, she doesn't negotiate with terrorists, right? And, and that's, uh, that's what it is, right? But when we try uh, to negotiate with God, right? When we try to say, look, God, I want this to happen. We're being just like a kid that's trying to argue with a parent. That's trying to set the terms with mom or dad. How do you respond when your life doesn't go the way you expect it to? How do you respond when your plans don't work out? How do you respond when God's will for your life is different than your will for your life? See, Mary's response is how faithful people respond to God's plan, even when it doesn't make sense. Mary didn't have complete understanding of how all this was going to happen. Mary just knew that an angel had come to her, had said that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. And she said, let it be. She says, behold, I am your servant. That should be our response. God, I'm your servant. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to follow you. I'm here to do your will, not my will. See, Mary had confidence in God's promise because she trusted the one who had made the promise. Do you trust the one who makes the promise? Do you trust the one who leads you? See, Mary knew that God always keeps his promises and his promises are always good for his people. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God's promises are always good for us? Or do we believe that God's will for our lives is always what's best for us, even when we don't understand how that could be? 
Do we believe, do we get, do we live like that it doesn't matter where God leads me or what God calls me to do or the doors that God opens for me, he's still good. Or here's the thing, do we believe that even when God shuts the door that I wanna walk through, that he's still good and he's still worthy? Because I don't know about you, but there have been times where I wanna kick the door down, right? The door's open, the door closes, and I decide that I'm gonna kick it down And I can kick and I can try as hard as I want to. I can try to rip that door down, but God is stronger than me. And his ways are better than my ways. And he is wiser than me. And his will for my life is better than my will for my life. And that's true of you as well. God's will for your life is better than your will for your life. And so, so maybe even right now, as we're going into the Christmas season, the holiday season, maybe you're just in that spot where you're just really struggling. Maybe you are in that spot where you just don't want to keep going. Maybe when you think about Christmas, when you think about the holidays, for you, you don't get excited about it. You begin to get depressed. You you begin to feel like, hey, is it over yet? Is it January 3rd yet so that we can just be through all of this? Well, know this. I don't know why God might have you where he does. I don't have that answer. But here's what I do know, that God has you there for a purpose. He has you there for a reason. And so while God's will for your life may look different than your will for your life. You can trust that God is working. Even in the confusing, even in the trying, even in the difficult, God is working. See, the coming of Jesus proves that God does the impossible. He shows up where we don't expect him. He he does what only he can do. He gives us the grace to know uh, that he will do it. See, our God is not the God of the possible. He's the God of the impossible. He's the God who does what only he can do in ways that only he can do it. And because God can do the impossible, we can have hope for today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. See, sometimes the way that we have to live our life, it isn't years or months or weeks at a time. Sometimes the way that you and I have to live our life is day by day by day by day. Sometimes we've got to live minute by minute by minute by minute. And what we can take to the bank is that if God got us through the last minute, he's going to get us through the next minute. Right? That if we can trust God with that, we can trust God then. And so some of us, we just need to be reminded of this truth. We need to preach it to ourselves every day that God is big and he can make a way where we don't think he can. He can restore that relationship. He can fix that marriage. He can heal that sickness. He can free you from that sin. He can heal that hurt. And so here's the question. Do you believe that God can do the impossible? And do you pray like God can do the impossible? Do you believe that God can work in ways that don't seem possible? And do you pray that God would work in those ways? See, God proves that he can do the impossible in the coming of Jesus, but he proves that he can do the impossible in another way as well. See, God has found a way to give forgiveness for sin while not ignoring the penalty that our sin deserves. This is really why we celebrate Christmas. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came. Jesus was born to die. 
See, just as the virgin birth was a miracle, the death and resurrection of Jesus is a miracle. See, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see God doing the impossible once again. See, the gospel really, it begins all the way back in Genesis 3, and it keeps moving, we keep building, it keeps growing. And here in Luke chapter 1, we see the gospel move into HD. Right? We see Jesus come. And Jesus didn't come just to be born of a virgin. Jesus came to be born of a virgin to live a sinless life in our place and to die a sinner's death for us so that the penalty that our sin deserves now doesn't fall on us, but it fell on Jesus. And now if we trust Jesus, then we can have forgiveness. We can have life. We can know love and peace. See, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we can have hope for today and tomorrow. That's really what this passage is about. This passage is about hope. That this Jesus who would come, who would be the son of the Most High, who would sit on David's throne, who would keep the, fulfill the promise with Jacob, whose kingdom would last forever and has no end. This story is a story of hope. That because of what Jesus has done, we don't put our confidence in ourselves, we put our confidence in Jesus. That's what Mary did. When Mary heard this promise, Mary's confidence wasn't that, okay, I can do this. In verse 38, Mary doesn't say, I've got this, I can do this, I can handle this. No, what does Mary say? She says, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so if we're going to have hope for tomorrow, that hope begins not in putting that confidence in ourselves, but putting that confidence in Jesus. But putting that confidence in the one who can do the impossible. And so my question for you today is where is your confidence? Is your confidence in the one who can do the impossible? Or is your confidence in something else? I'm going to pray and, and we're going to sing Maybe as we sing, maybe as I pray, you need to stop and ask the Lord, God, am I, am I trusting in you, the one who can do the impossible, or am I trusting in myself? You've proven that you can do the impossible. God, help me to trust you. Help me to trust your power. Help me to trust your strength more other rather than trusting myself and my power and my strength. And maybe, maybe you'd say, hey, I, I need to talk to someone about what does this look like? What does it look like to trust in the one who can do the impossible rather than the one who can trust, rather than, than in myself? Well, if that's you, we, we want to talk with you. We want to have that conversation. So you can, you can send a text, that, that number that we, we shared at the beginning of the service. We'll have it on the screen here in just a minute. You can send that text with your name to 407-338-4024. And there's someone on the other end of that line that is ready to talk with you, ready to start a conversation and what does it look like to trust the one who can do the impossible? Or maybe you need to talk to someone right now. You need to talk to someone face to face. You can walk right out. Our next steps room is on the left there, or on the right. There are people in there ready to talk with you about what does it look like to trust the God who can do the impossible. And not just the God who can do the impossible, but the God who has done the impossible. That's who we're invited to trust. That's who we're invited to know. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we are grateful 
that you are the God who does the impossible. And God, we're grateful that you haven't left us to ourselves. You haven't left us to our own devices, but instead, God, you have sent Jesus to live and to die in our place. And so God, we pray that as we move into this Christmas season, that we wouldn't focus on Christmas and miss Jesus. But God, we pray that you would keep Jesus in front of us. God, we pray that you would keep your Savior, your Messiah King in our view so that we can be reminded that you are the God of the impossible. That you are the God who does what we cannot do. And God, you've shown us that you've done that by offering us forgiveness and life. By offering us hope and peace and love. And so, Father, we pray this morning that every heart, every life in this room would know the hope and the peace that only you can give through your perfect son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.